You're listening to John Anderson Direct with Professor John Haldane. Professor John Haldane is currently the Director of the University Centre for Ethics, Philosophy and Public Affairs at St Andrews University in Scotland. He's also Professor of Education at Australian Catholic University. He's made distinguished contributions to many areas of philosophy, including the philosophy of religion, metaphysics, ethics and ascetics. He served as Chair of the Royal Institute of Philosophy, a very prestigious position indeed, and is also Chair of the Advisory Board of Ethics Finder, an expertly curated ethics search engine database developed by the Australian Catholic University. He's also a former papal advisor to the Vatican. I hope you enjoy this conversation. John, thank you so very much for joining us. Uh, you're, of course, in Scotland. I'm in Sydney, Australia, care of modern technology. We can communicate. Now, can I begin by putting it to you that uh, many people would perhaps say that a Christian philosopher is a contradiction in terms. Uh, that uh, perhaps a philosopher by definition can never commit to a system of beliefs to the extent that religious belief requires. Can I ask for your comments on that? Is there anything to this kind of critique of the notion of a Christian philosopher or a Christian philosophy in your view? Mm. Well, that's a, a very good question and, and one that's been debated both, as it were, externally in, in the sort of general public realm, thinking about philosophy, but also internally uh, within Christianity. Um, what I first, I think, the first thing to say is to draw a distinction. Uh, there's an ambiguity, I suppose, in the idea of being a Christian philosopher. I mean, think of somebody who was a, a Christian plumber or a Christian engineer or a Christian taxi driver. What that would typically mean is that they were a Christian who was also a plumber or an engineer or a taxi driver. And so, of course, one. One way one might be a Christian philosopher would be being a Christian and being a philosopher. And in that respect, of course, the two might be kept apart, just in the same way in which somebody might keep their religion apart from their day-to-day -day work. And there somebody might think, well, we can understand that perhaps maybe there's a compartmentalization here, which might be intellectually a good or a bad thing, probably a bad thing. But that's one sense of being a Christian philosopher, being a Christian in one's practice, as it were. And then as a philosopher, one's Christian ideas and concerns and commitments and so on don't really then enter into one's philosophical practice. That's easier in the circumstance in which the philosophy that one practices is, say, in a technical field, let's say formal logic, for example, where questions of religious faith might not seem to play any part one way or another. But the richer sense of being a Christian philosopher is being a philosopher whose philosophical activity, the topics one chooses to discuss, the ways in which one discusses them, the ways in which one approaches them and so on, are informed by, or to some degree or another, reflect one's Christian belief. Now, I'm a Christian philosopher in that second sense. That is to say, and more specifically, I'm a Catholic philosopher, but the Christian philosopher will be fine at this point. Um, and there somebody might think, well, hang on a second. I understand that that is a richer notion in which it's not just you're a Christian and a philosopher, but you're a philosopher whose philosophical activity is informed by your religious faith. But isn't that problematic? Because surely 
Yeah, so this is the one. So surely the idea of the philosopher is somebody who ought to operate in a kind of presupposition-free way. That's to say you ought not to bring any assumptions or presuppositions or commitments, as it were, to the task. Can anyone do that, by the way? Is it at all? Well, this is just, this is, this is, if I continue this line, I mean, this is just my point. There is no such thing as presuppositionless thought, right? Where our, and I think that this, this idea that all thought is, or is engaged, all thought, that we, we approach issues in, in the midst of things, thought, as it were, is an ongoing concern. There is no possibility either in a sort of psychological sense or indeed even in a philosophical sense of starting from nowhere. Wherever one begins is somewhere, as it were, in the flow of thought and the flow of reason and such like. <clears throat> so everybody brings to their philosophical activity some set of assumptions. They might be quasi-scientific assumptions about the nature of the material world. Uh, they may be religious assumptions. They may be ethical assumptions and so on and such like. So that isn't a such a problem. There is no alternative to that. Just to give an analogy, I would say something like this. I mean, the first five years of my higher education before I turned formally to philosophy were spent in art schools. And uh, so I was studying to be an artist. And um, it would be like saying, well, look, you know, you can't be influenced by any art prior to that point. You know, you just have to sort of begin afresh. Well, there is no beginning afresh any more than there's beginning afresh in the use of the English language. In order to speak, you have to use a language, and a language has a history, and it has a form, and it has a structure, and so on. And likewise, to act as a philosopher, one has to be informed by, educated by, certain philosophical ideas, and extra philosophical ideas, and so on. So, in general, the idea that philosophy is presuppositionless is itself incoherent. So the question then is, how should one's commitments or assumptions and so on um, play a role? What sort of role should they play? And what I would say is this, that this is where we get a difference between um, philosophy, say, and a theological commitment. So I don't think, for instance, that if I'm engaging in a philosophical argument, it's reasonable for me to invoke, for example, elements of what I would take to be revelation, uh, in the context of trying to make a philosophical argument that is not as such concerned with anything to do with revelation. So, you know, if I'm trying to sort of debate certain questions about the nature of matter, for, in, for instance, um, you know, invoking revelation is just kind of, <laughs> isn't going to be helpful in any sense. But that doesn't mean that um, there's anything wrong with approaching issues from a set of concerns and interests that one has. And of course, once one starts to do that, one thing that may happen is that as well, the philosophy bends back upon the religious assumptions and puts those to question, uh, asks whether they are indeed reasonable and such like. So it's not as if in being an engaged Christian philosopher, one isn't open to uh, asking questions about and probing the reasonability of one's very religious beliefs. But there are no presuppositional starting points. Um. Terrific. Now, uh, there's lots to explore there, but I actually want to change gears just for a moment. I can't wait to get to this because 
Uh, I think one thing you and I would furiously agree on is that um, raising the standard of uh, public debate at the moment is critical if we're to find our way forward in view of all of the, the multiplicity of difficult challenges that confront us, many of which involve great clashes of values uh, and, and perspectives of um, how we should treat one another, especially when we disagree. So I want to come to, uh, as I say, this is to change gears and then we'll go back to the things you've just raised. The chair of, um, you are the chair of the advisory board of ethicsfinder.com. Now, ethicsfinder.com is a website and it advertises itself as a one-stop shop for ethics inquiry. Can you tell us about this very interesting project and, and, and how you think it can make a real contribution to the thing that I've just indicated we're, we're very keen on, raising the public or the quality of the public debate? Yeah. So <clears throat> Ethics Finder is a, was a project that was really, credit for it goes to um, uh, a figure at ACU, Australian Catholic University in Sydney, Patrick Langrell. It's something that he conceived some years ago. In fact, I think he was thinking of something slightly different, not restricted perhaps to ethics, but certainly including it. And then, you know, that went through various iterations in his thinking and so on. But it wasn't until he got to ACU a few years ago, not that, just in the last few years, uh, that he really had the opportunity to um, develop this. And it's, it's hosted by ACU, it's been developed using the technical resources of ACU. And it, in fact, was, was launched, um, I think, in September of last year or thereabouts, maybe no, a little later than that, sorry. But at any rate, by the, uh, the, the Vice Chancellor of ACU, Slatkel Scribus. So it, it has the backing of ACU. And also, I should say that ACU is unusual, indeed, I think, unique, uh, it, certainly in Australia and, and, and more widely, as far as I'm aware, in having a deputy vice chancellor for ethics. That is to say that Professor Hayden Ramsey at ECU, actually that is his title, uh, deputy vice chancellor ethics. So uh, he is, he an ethics finder and the vice chancellor's commitment represent a serious investment institutional. I don't just mean sort of financial, but it has that aspect as well, but a serious investment in the idea that ACU through Ethics Finder, but now let's just say Ethics Finder itself, should make a contribution to uh, helping people think better uh, in an informed way, in a clearer way, and so on, uh, about a whole range of issues to do with personal morality, social ethics, political uh, philosophy, uh, the way in which religious ideas can inform those, and so on. So <clears throat> given that it's at ACU, it, it has an orientation towards uh, Catholic content, but from the point of view of informing people uh, about what a sort of Catholic thought around ethics has been, but in a way that is open to also introducing them to criticisms of some aspects of the Catholic tradition. But that's only part of it. The broader part of it actually is, is introducing people to ethical questions and then uh, providing them with resources for thinking about those. So if I could just, just very briefly explain it, if somebody goes onto the Ethics Finder website and, and types in um, uh, an issue that might interest them, let's say abortion or you know, uh, liberalism or whatever else it may be, if they type that in, they'll be led to um, a topic heading. 
And there are a couple of hundred of these, I think, uh, there are about somewhere between one and 200. And I've written for each of those topics, a little kind of mini encyclopedia article. So that's a very brief, I mean, it might be as short as 200 words, it might be as long as 800 words, a brief introduction to the topic. It's not an opinionated introduction. It's not trying to, as it were, sell a line on this. It's not trying to argue a case. It just explains what the issue is and what some of the views on the issue have been. And then that's your sort of top level introduction to the topic. But then what you're led through to is a whole series of resources. These may be books, they may be academic articles, they may be commentary pieces, they may be videos of lectures or whatever other material it may be and so on. So it really is a fantastic and unparalleled resource. And it's already uh, getting attention, uh, particularly but not exclusively across the English speaking world. So I know people in the United States are using it, people uh, here in the UK, but certainly people in Australia. So it's relatively early days for it. Um, but for, you know, we're saying this first six months, but it's developing. Uh, and I think that people, as I say, if they just type in ethics finder, once you get into it, 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 it it's quite engrossing and you'll find yourself moving from one topic to the next. So that's what it is. That's what it about, it's about. But if I could just go back to your starting point, I think it, it's, you know, if this had been produced at any time, it would be a useful resource. But I would say in the period that we inhabit at present, it's almost a kind of essential resource because it's very difficult in the kind of crossfire of debate to actually get a grip on issues in a way that is, as it were, free from polemic. And that's what this is designed to do, to uh, enable people to get a grip on what some of the uh, important issues are uh, in a way that can inform their thinking. And then it's up to them uh, how, they, how they develop their thinking about them. It's, uh, it fascinates me that uh, I think that there is a real thirst for deep insight and deep understanding uh, in many quarters of our community. And yet if you listen to the mainstream uh, media debate, for example, or on the other hand, the Twitterati behaving, you would think we'd reduced ourselves to the level of, um, uh, you know, uh, of the beasts. I mean, it's just, it is unbelievable stuff, all feelings based, very little data, very little research, very little reason. Um, how do you, in your own mind, sort of evaluate this, this gulf that's emerged from the significant people, numbers of people, including young people, who, who are actually thinking about things quite deeply uh, and the broader impression that a Martian who came and looked at Western society would immediately form that that, that um, superficiality is the norm, uh, that uh, words have all been reversed, inclusion means exclusion, diversity means narrow-mindedness, uh, 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 tolerance means only if you agree with me, no one talks love, no one talks cooperation. There's an enormous sort of divide there. Yeah. But there are still people looking for quality information. So how, how do you think it's going? Well, I think a starting point uh, for this is to think about how we got here. And um, I, I, I think when people try to understand aspects of the world they inhabit, I mean, the social world that they inhabit, where there are great changes, they tend to look for a single cause. But in general, that's a mistake. In general, great social changes are, are, the, are the result of uh, several causes. 
which have often accidentally converged. That's to say, it's not, as it were, a grand conspiracy of causes. It may simply be a, conver a, 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 a convergence of different factors. And I think that's what's gone on uh, to produce the situation in which we find ourselves. So uh, let me just very briefly just mention two or three of those factors that I think uh, we can see as convergent. And it's, it's important to understand this because if one wants to try to find a way out of this, you have to, as it were, untie the knots, the entanglements, as it were. So one uh, factor in all of this is obviously the rise of a certain kind of liberalism, a liberalism that sees itself as freeing people from things. And what things? Well, the illusions of the past. And those illusions might be taken to involve ideas of tr traditional morality, uh, ideas of religious belief, of commitment, of certain social forms, traditional marriage, family, and so on. So you can see that one element in all of this is a way of thinking which sees itself as emancipatory, as freeing people to think freely, to live freely. And that's a very familiar idea. It has some merit. We could discuss it in itself. But I just at this point, I just want to identify it as one factor. So this idea of emancipatory liberalism, freeing people from the conceptions of the past, getting them to be autonomous, to decide to choose to think for themselves, not to live by inherited values, traditions, and so on, simply because they have inherited them. That's one factor. A second factor is a feature of capitalism or late capitalism, which is the marketization pretty much of everything. So what we have is a situation in which ideas and debate and so on themselves have a market value. That, and, and if you think about the role of advertising in this from the development of advertising in the 40s and 50s through the 60s, 70s into the present period and so on, think of the sophistication of the techniques by which people market ideas, not just you know, material consumer products and so on, but ideas themselves. So ideas and indeed styles of argument, just think of the chat show host, think of the commodification, the value that attaches to the capacity to speak in an entertaining and engaging or attractive way, or just to get people's attention. So that's a second factor that, as it were, the human mind, the human intellect, the capacity for thought has itself been channeled into ways that correspond to the advertising, uh, the advertising and the marketization of, of a product. So thinking has become a marketable product. Now, that isn't necessarily very good for thinking because, of course, it may mean that, it, uh, that value, market value, attaches to sensationalism, for instance, rather than to slower, deliberative, serious thinking that's harder to sell, we can put it that way, because you have to invest more in it in terms of education, of deferred gratification. You have to think, well, I won't know the answer to this until I spend a lot of time thinking about it. But of course, in a market economy, spending a lot of time before you get any return on your investment isn't something that people are, are altogether happy with. And then a third factor, uh, which is sort of, when you mention Twitter, this comes to mind, is the, are the technological developments. It used to be the case that in the past, for thought to enter the public realm, it had to pass through certain gateways, as it were, and there were gatekeepers. So, for instance, if somebody wanted to comment on some aspect of 
current affairs by writing a letter to a newspaper, a serious letter to a serious newspaper. They had to have a certain kind of literary facility and so on to compose something that was, you know, well structured, well argued and so on. And there'd be a letters editor who would make decisions about what got in there and so on. Or again, if, if somebody was a parliamentarian or perhaps in a local council or something of that sort, there would be expectations of a certain standard of, of, of capacity, of marshalling considerations, evidence and so on, presenting them in a certain way. Now, I think what's happened is that these three forces that I've described have sort of come together. So the emancipatory is kind of a do your own thing, as it were, right? You know, don't be bound uh, by the traditions and expectations or the forms and social forms and ways of living of the past. Do your own thing. Uh, we've got that. We've got the marketization, which is kind of do your own thing in a kind of snappy, engaging, arresting way, which might mean shouting at people, literally. And then we've got the technology that enables people to do that. So we've gone from a situation in which, you know, efforts to address ethical, social, political questions were advanced in the recognition that these are deep and difficult questions with which human beings have been engaged for so long as uh, we have history of, of human activity and so on. And there have been serious contributions developed out of Greek thought, developed out of Hebraic Christian thought and so on and such like. Um, that you have to articulate your thought in a way that sets aside the, the concerns of market in the interests of truth. And you also have to do so in, in modes of speech and ways that are um, cultivated, as it were, I mean, seriously considered and developed, cultivated in the sense of grown and so on, uh, in ways that are considered and respectful and such like. Well, all of those have been pushed aside by these, the convergence of these three forces. And um, interestingly, I mean, these forces come from different directions in a way. So the, the, the emancipatory one, you might think, comes broadly speaking from the left, but the marketization of thought comes to some extent from the right, at least from a certain kind of uh, a free market uh, thought and so on. And then the technology is just all over the place. So I think we're in you know, we're in a very difficult situation. And to get ourselves out of that situation, we have to think about each of these three things. We have to think about the role of tradition and the history of thought as something to be taken seriously, just as in art, one would take the history of art seriously, the great works of art from the past and learn from them. So we should look at the great works of political philosophy, moral philosophy, and so on, and religious thought from the past and consider them seriously. Uh, we need to find ways of presenting our thought that are, are, are respectful uh, and, and themselves serious uh, to avoid the idea that this is just a marketplace in which we're trying to sell goods. And thirdly, we have to uh, develop kind of slower and more careful and more respectful forms of exchanging our ideas than just, you know, uh, a few characters on a Twitter message or something added to a um, you know, to a, to, to a web page or something of that sort. So there we are. That's my analysis. And that's the, now, quite how we get out of this. Well, I think we just, we just have to push back and we have to push back very hard. And one thing that I've been impressed by or taken hope from, I should say, uh, in recent times, last two or three years, is a move on the part of what I would call traditional liberals who see that freedom is threatened by what's going on. 
And very interestingly, for example, people who themselves politically uh, would be sort of on the left uh, have come together uh, to um, create a journal, for instance, called the Journal of Controversial Ideas, where they think it's important that people should be able to express themselves around these. And in that journal, you can publish anonymously as, as well and so on. But I think that's, and it's an academic journal. One of the editors of it, one of the founding editors is Peter Singer uh, from Australia. But another one is Jeff McMahon, who's professor of moral philosophy, an American professor of moral philosophy at Oxford. And these people would, would see themselves as progressives, as liberals and so on. But they actually think that what's going on now is not in the service of progressivism, but is, is an enemy of any kind of serious thought. Uh, perhaps it underlines a point made by one of my previous speakers, as I understood him to put it, Frank Ferruti, when he said the old definitions of left and right have become increasingly irrelevant. Yep. Uh, we yep. need to understand now it has to do with uh, people who, if you like, I, I think I'm paraphrasing roughly here, but what I took out of it, uh, those who are interested in reason and debate and facts and analysis and history and those who are simply operating on feelings and emotions. That Absolutely. seems to me the new divide because some yep. of the best thinkers about freedom in this country and the best critiques of where we've got to uh, come from what would have once been regarded as the quite hard left. I found it really interesting. Uh, yeah, well, that would certainly be true of, of Freddie. Freddie and one or two others were members of a, I mean, I, I don't know quite ideologically where they stood, but I would think a kind of neo-Trotskyist kind of group and so on. Uh, and uh, yes, I think that's, uh, I think that's right. You see, there is a difference between the old left and the new left. The old left were concerned with questions of economic and social justice of yes. that kind. They weren't cultural revolutionaries. They weren't trying to overthrow notions of the family and so on. You put it this way, they wanted working class people to be able to live middle class lives. And they thought that the obstacle to that was economic poverty. And so their imperative was to address economic inequalities. They weren't trying to uh, attack traditional uh, moral values. They just wanted to enable people who, whose poverty was an obstacle to living those kinds of lives to be freed from those, to, to overcome those obstacles. But the new left that developed really from the 1960 onwards was less interested in, in economic justice and much more interested in overthrowing, revolutionary in this sense, overthrowing whole systems of values, conceptions of marriage, conceptions of education, sexual life and so on, but not only those various forms of social organization and such like. And uh, it is interesting to me at any rate that people who belong to the old left, even quite the, the far old left, themselves see that a situation has come about through, as I say, the kind of convergence of forces that I've described, that is actually the enemy of serious social analysis. It doesn't further it, it, it undermines it. I'm very glad there are people who can see that because I believe it to be true. I think we are now reaping a very ugly whirlwind. And I think uh, in particular, our young people are the, the bearing the brunt of our cultural war games. Uh, and mm -hmm. I find that deeply offensive. But the way in which we sort of balance out um, uh, private belief with public debate, uh, how Christians uh, on the one hand might say, well, all we need is the Bible, others might say, no, you've got to be engaged, is not new. Um, the early church theologian Tertullian uh, famously asked what Athens could possibly have to do with Jerusalem. And I think what he was yeah. saying was secular knowledge, you know, all the things we've been talking about, they're no import to a Christian. All a Christian needs to do is to be armed with the Bible. On the other hand, St. Augustine, whose writings today are as fresh as they were when he put them together all those centuries ago, 
astonishing writer and thinker and writer, I think. Uh, but he believed that secular knowledge and philosophy should be keenly studied and appropriated by all thoughtful people, including Christians. So uh, what are your thoughts on how historically the Christian religion has understood the relationship between faith and reason? Uh, what's been the legacy, if you like, of, of the Christian approach? Yeah. Over to you. Yeah. What, are you what thoughts well, do you have? <clears throat> surely, yeah. Let me just go back to Tertullian so and pick that up there. Um, I mean, the, the, yes, Tertullian asks, what has Athens to do with Jerusalem? So let's just take a moment to understand quite what it was that Tertullian, more precisely what Tertullian had in mind. And this can actually connect with St. Paul's experience in Athens, where St. Paul goes to Athens, he goes up onto the Areopagus, where the philosophers discuss things and so on. He presents the Christian message and he doesn't really get anywhere with it. Uh, maybe he makes a couple of converts, but essentially uh, he comes away and he's pretty disgruntled uh, with philosophy. Now, Tertullian has Paul's experience in mind, but more generally, what Tertullian is saying is something like this. Look, if you're interested in the truth, the truth by which to live, why would you invest your time with the philosophers who famously dispute these matters but seem to come to no clear conclusions or if they come to conclusions they're not ones that everybody accepts and so we've got the, the different schools of philosophy in Athens and so on. Why would you follow that way when there is a revelation of truth, the Christian revelation? So, you know, when Christ says, I am the way, the truth and the life, if you're interested in a kind of truth that it will inform your life, then wouldn't you just follow Jesus Christ not the philosophers, let's put it that way. That's Tertullian's idea. Now, I would respond to that by saying, well, hang on a second, let's actually look at, say, Paul himself. Now, Paul grew up in a part of the world where there was a tradition, there was a Stoic academy, uh, and Paul in Romans uh, actually refers to certain Stoic ideas, you know, from the beginning of time, the evidence of God's existence was present in the wonders of nature and so on. He's more or less quoting there Cicero, a Roman Stoic philosopher and other philosophers behind Cicero. So Paul himself, whom Tertullian is impressed by, isn't entirely hostile to philosophy. Now, what I would say is this, when you get to say something like somebody like Augustine or then later on in the 13th century, when we get to Thomas Aquinas, what these people see is that um, faith and reason shouldn't be thought of as standing in opposition, but rather are kind of perspectives on truth that can be combined. Um, it's very much, it was, it was part of the tradition of Hebrew thought that there was this kind of argument in the case of say moral thinking, there was this kind of argument between revelation and reason. And this is, in the rabbinical tradition, what you get this kind of to and fro of argumentation around uh, any given uh, any given issue. But if we look at the beginning of John's gospel, the prologue of John's gospel, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and so on. The, 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 the Greek term for word is logos. Now logos is what the Greek philosophers were looking for, an account of the nature of reality. So when John wrote the prologue to the gospel, when he wrote in the beginning was the word and so on. He was writing for Greek speaking Jews 
in Alexandria and other places. And what he was saying is the philosophical quest with which you are familiar and the Hebrew tradition of which you are a part are convergent here in the incarnation and the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so rather than think of these as opposed, what we have to do now is start to explore the ways in which what religious revelation on the one side and philosophical inquiry on the other side suggest about the nature of reality of human beings, nature of human beings and of their place within the cosmos. And it's that idea, rather than Tertullian separation, rather than disjoin them, what others, Augustine, whom you've mentioned, do, is do what was already present in John's Gospel, which is to conjoin them, bring together the philosophical search with the religious search. And so what Augustine does, he draws on Plato and that tradition and so on. He tries to draw on philosophical categories to illuminate and to explain and to articulate certain religious ideas and also lets those religious ideas inform and enrich the philosophical ones. And so we get this synthesis of the philosophical and of the religious, and then that continues on. And probably the greatest synthesis of philosophical thought uh, and of religious thought, Christian religious thought, comes with Thomas Aquinas uh, in the 13th century. But that tradition of synthesis of bringing together is in fact the dominant uh, Christian tradition. It's only really when we get to the Reformation that um, this starts to split apart. I mean, it, it, there had been fractures prior to that. But if you take somebody like Calvin, for instance, uh, um, you know, Calvin believes in the depravity of the human faculties. What he believes is that sin has so disabled us, not just spiritually, but naturally, that we can't trust reason. And that to try to invoke reason is a kind of blasphemy against God. All that one should do is accept revelation. But the trouble with that view is that which revelation is one to accept? One needs to apply an intellectual filter in the reading of the scriptures and so on to try to determine what's a plausible interpretation and such like. And that is itself an exercise of critical reasoning. So the very turn to scripture, if it's to have any credibility, has itself, I mean, the sola scriptura, only scripture, can't be true because the interpretation of scripture it requires the exercise of critical intellectual faculties, for which there's another word, namely philosophy. Um, can I then, just pursuing this interest of yours in, in, in ethics, what does it all mean as it plays sure. out in a world where we're trying to make a positive difference? Scientists study things because they believe there's reality. Otherwise, it makes no point to study science. If you come to the issue of ethics, can it make any sense uh, if there's no such thing as objective moral norms and human dignity? It goes back to some earlier remarks that you made uh, that people, uh, you know, and the liberty has become confused with licentiousness, I think. Let's throw yeah. everything out the door. Um, otherwise, uh, you know, without it, what troubles me is how do we find reason for treating human beings any differently from animals or any other objective or on what basis do we accord dignity to all regardless of their place and station in life if there's no objectivity if there's no sort of moral norms and no basis for human dignity i know that's a, a difficult <laughs> question it's a big question yeah it's a very all right well, uh, I, let me have a shot at that okay so first of all 
let me just take up something that you said, which is the way in which certain concepts have been corrupted, you might say, distorted and twisted. Right? We took the quite, you were picking up something I'd said earlier on about the idea of liberty, uh, freedom, and so on. Let's just take a concept that's extremely important in um, diverse societies. So, if we have a non-homogeneous society, that is to say, we have a society in which people come to it from a series or are embedded in a series of different cultural, intellectual traditions, or perhaps in no tradition at all, or very little in the way of tradition and so on. So we've got widely diverse societies in that sense of diverse. I don't mean in the current uh, political use of the term diverse. I just mean the fact that these are um, people of very different circumstances and commitments and so on and such like. The primary, the two virtues that you need in such a society are justice and toleration. That's to say, if we are to live together in a reasonable way and form a community, Augustine, whom you mentioned earlier on, says that a society is a community of people united in fellowship about the objects of their love. That's what he says. So a marketplace is not a community. A marketplace is where people need have no common values. They just exchange goods with a common currency, but not a common value. But you have a community where you have a, a group of people, sorry, you have a society where you have a community of people united by the objects of their love. Now, in a diverse society, can that be the case? Is that possible? And it seems to me the answer to that is yes. If we take as the two principal objects, political objects, as it were, of love or affection or commitment, justice and toleration. So these are the two most important values, I would say, uh, political values, justice and toleration. Now let's just take the toleration one for a moment. It, what toleration meant was putting up with things that you don't accept. So a tolerant person had a different view of a matter about what was true or about how one ought to live, but was willing to as it were, withhold their opposition to that. I mean, they might express their opposition, but would put up with the fact. And that was reciprocated. So people might deeply disagree, but they would tolerate one another. But then toleration became appropriated to mean approbation, approval. And so somebody who didn't... So in the past, you could be tolerant, but disagree. That was part of the meaning of it, right? Putting up with, but disagree. But then toleration, the notion of toleration, got twisted to mean approbation and then further twisted to mean celebration. So now somebody who doesn't celebrate something is deemed to be intolerant. Now that's an intellectual corruption of the very meaning of the concept of toleration because toleration meant putting up with something that you don't accept or believe or share and so on. Whereas now you're deemed to be intolerant unless you fully embrace something. So there's no scope for reservation or disagreement. Now that is going to undermine the very possibility of there being a community. If people who don't agree are deemed to be intolerant, we must have toleration, we must have justice. Now, with that in the background, how do we proceed to reason about those matters? Well, I would just say briefly, because this touches on the question of moral objectivity, there are basically two traditions in ethics, just very broadly speaking. Of course, there are subdivisions within these. But one tradition thinks that we can get to ethical truth just by thinking about the forms, 
of certain forms of thought. So, for example, somebody would say, well, we can show that you shouldn't lie because lying involves you in a contradiction. It involves you, as it were, saying what you don't believe, but saying ought to be about saying the true, and so the liar is not saying the true, so they're kind of, there's a sort of contradiction involved. This is a sort of rationalistic attempt to try to found or root or discover ethical truth in the very logic of thought itself. Now, my own view is that that doesn't work. Uh, and I won't go into the reasons for that just now, but I'll just say it just doesn't work. The other way to try and find ethical truth is to think that ethical truth is truth concerning the good for human beings. If we're dealing with human beings, if we're on a different planet, we'd be dealing with different creatures. But the good for human beings. Now, the good for human beings is discoverable by thinking about what humans are. Just as one can discover the good for daffodils uh, or for oak trees by discovering what they are. If somebody's cultivating uh, plants and so on, somebody's a horticulturist, uh, working in a garden or something of that sort, you discover what will enable a plant to flourish, what it needs and so on, and also what is going to be damaging to it. Now, I think that ethical truth is like that, that we need to understand what we are, the kinds of beings that we are, and in discovering what we are, we discover what's conducive to our flourishing. So in that sense, I think that ethics can be a little bit like science. That is to say, there are objective facts there, about human nature, about what we are, and there are facts about what's conducive to our well-being, and there are also facts about what's harmful to our well-being. And now, bringing these two together, what I would say is this, we can see that toleration is a value because toleration is conducive to the well-being of individuals who need, on the one hand, to share certain things together because they're common inhabitants of the same society, but on the other hand, want certain different things because they have different other values. And toleration is the value that allows people to flourish under conditions of disagreement and difference. So if you get rid of toleration, all you're left with is the war of all against all. Identity politics. Indeed. Uh, yeah, which but is see, identity politics undermines the idea of a common humanity. Yes. Instead of emphasizing what we share, it tries to it focuses upon disagreement. But the, the paradox in that is that the disagreement is expressed out of a common humanity. Right? It's human beings commonly that get into arguments. Arguments okay, that's not a problem. But it's the necessity of understanding that argument has to coexist with mutual respect and so on, and that's where toleration is so important. And I take your point that if I could uh, paraphrase that, uh, in many ways, modern elites not so much demand toleration as unconditional surrender. Precisely, yeah. Um, that's what that's the point about. But you can yeah. see how rapidly that's happened. Oh, yeah. Everybody knew that tolerate me to put up with something. You know, if I have noisy neighbours and I tolerate them, well, that doesn't mean I enjoy their noise. It doesn't mean I approve of their noise. It doesn't mean I want to celebrate their noise. But I restrict the, the move that I will make against them, right? I tolerate it, I put up with it. But now what, if we, if we take the way in which toleration has been twisted, I will be intolerant on the, on the contemporary view unless I celebrate their noise making. <laughs> yes, yeah, and I think this is a really critical point. It goes to yeah. the heart of how we are distorting language and Indeed. because of that, uh, ultimately Absolutely. the way we relate to one another so we're not able to live with our differences, let alone our deepest differences, at a exactly. time 
when the differences in our societies are very deep indeed. We need more tolerance than ever. But can I just say to you that um, I, I've always thought tolerance is a virtue, but perhaps not as powerful a virtue as love. So you think of the Christian message, you've got a cross on a, a yeah. broken figure on it, dying not so that we might tolerate one another, after all he's been put there by all right. of humanity, that's the Christian version, uh, uh, in an act of enormous uh, loathing and hatred of the person we put on the cross, uh, he's done it out of love. Um, and in a sense, the Christian creed is each of you surely, uh, you know, uh, surely the message is uh, made in the image of God uh, and I loved you while you were still my enemy, so you must love your enemies. Uh, was it Chesterton who said something about the need for society to recognise uh, the value in the biblical injunction that you should uh, uh, love your neighbour uh, and you should love your enemy, uh, even though they're often the same people? Mm. Yeah, I mean, it was Chesterton also, and I think we can connect this with something you said earlier on. It was Chesterton also said that the, the, the one bit of uh, Christian revelation that's empirically provable is the doctrine of original sin. Ah, yes. <laughs> and what he meant by that was that it's pretty clear if you reflect on human life that we are flawed and broken creatures in a certain way. Now, I can just connect this with, with both with Tertullian and Calvin, if I may. See, Calvin thought that the effects of original sin were to destroy, really, our natural powers, or so to corrupt them that we couldn't trust them. And Augustine says something that sounds a little bit like that. I mean, Calvin was influenced by Augustine. What Augustine says at one point is that the natural effects of sin are a darkening of the intellect, a disturbance of the passions, and an irresolution of the will. What he means is this, is that the inherited sin of human beings means that they don't understand things as, as clearly as they, as they could, um, that their, their, their desires are intemperate and so on, and that even if they get those in, under control, they tend to have weakness of will. Now, you don't need to think that our uh, faculties are destroyed at all, but to recognize that they may be seriously weakened. And um, given that they are, then we have to be conscious of the fact that we and others live under the burden of limited capacities. And so that should make us respectful of error, not respectful of error in the sense of thinking that, you know, there's no truth in the matter, but of understanding the difficulty of attaining, of discovering truth about these fundamental matters of human beings, which again, this is where toleration and caritas or love come together that I should love my fellow inquirer. When I say fellow inquirer, I don't mean one who's in agreement with me, but one who, like me, is trying to work out what the truth is. I should have a tolerance for them, not just in order that we should be able to get on, socially speaking, but because their condition is like my condition. They're seekers also after the truth, if they are sincere indeed. They're seekers after the truth. And we both live under the limitations of the burdens of, of limited intellects and slightly disturbed intellects, if we can put it that way. So toleration can also be rooted in the Christian idea of charity, of a love for the other, for the sake of God. Um, and that love for the other means that as it were, you see in the other something that you see in yourself, which is the honest inquirer trying to grasp things that are difficult to get hold of. And even once you've got hold of them, have a tendency to slip out of your hands. 
Uh, can I say uh, what, what comes through and what you've just said then is, uh, you know, a very compassionate approach that rejects mm. pride on our part and recognises the humanity in others. And that's something that's so badly missing in Western culture at the moment. Uh, but, but to come to this issue of, um, of human nature, uh, it seems to me that during the Enlightenment, optimists thought we could improve human nature by you know, setting up the right environment for them to operate in and so forth. Now, uh, in so many, so many ways, I think the, environment, the, uh, the Enlightenment, uh, it's an attractive sounding word, but it visited a lot of misery on us. It was not everything that it was claimed to be. Think the French Revolution. Uh, uh, there are those who would say that uh, Karl Marx would have claimed that he was a child himself of the Enlightenment. But leave that aside. I would have thought the horrors of the 20th century had knocked that idea of optimistic humanism out of us, and we would have been more realistic. We are now seeing the emergence, it seems to me, of a new sort of um, uh, enlightenment that believes that we can use medical technology to usher in a new sort of utopia. And I mention this because I understand you've thought a lot about this question of transhumanism. Mm. Uh, and I, uh, the first thing I'd like to do, I mean, I understand it's the movement to use science and technology to transcend our current limitations uh, and to bring about, uh, you know, a sort of new sort of uh, better human race, if you like, where we do away with depression and love one another more effectively and cooperate in a more harmonious way. Uh, that sounds very utopian to me, and there's nothing new about utopianism. But can I ask you, what is transhumanism? Uh, and uh, uh, is it likely to lead to a better world in your view? Big questions, haven't you? Right. Well, very quickly. Uh, first of all, just a word about utopianism, because I think it's important uh, in this connection, but also in other connections. We talk about the miseries of the 20th century. And indeed, if we also talk about the miseries of the French Revolution um, in the 18th century and the revolutions that took place in the 19th century, also leading up then to the revolutions of the 20th century, both the communist revolution, national socialism and so on. Um, all of these were driven by kind of utopianism. These were driven by the belief that if we get things in, that there is a, a truth about human salvation, not a religious salvation I'm talking about here, a salvation that human beings can produce for themselves. Uh, but there are obstacles to its realization of, a, of its achievement. And those obstacles are human beings, their stubbornness and their, their resistance to this truth that will set you free and so on. And so the utopian, Utopianism inevitably and always ends in tyranny and death because the utopian thinks that the good that will be brought to humanity through the realization, the achievement of the utopian ideal cannot be held back by um, the waywardness of individuals. We have to sweep them out of the way, right? We can only pass along the road to freedom or emancipation or justice, whatever it is, by clearing things out the road. If there are any obstacles on the road, we're not going to get there. We're talking the now, cultural revolution. Now, among the revolution, obstacles on the road are people. We're talking the right. cultural revolution. We're talking Pol Pot. We're talking about Stalin. Yes, yeah, or French Revolution. We're talking French about revolution. the terror or uh, under yeah. Leninism. We're talking about and, and you know Stalin and so on. What happened under National Socialism and so on? We can't let individual human beings stand in the way of the transformation of humanity as a whole. And so, you know, the end justifies the means, and so the, the means now become the death camps or the gulags or whatever else it may be. So it's kind of built into utopianism 
the idea that the end justifies the means, right? The end is so great, right? Human perfection or whatever else it is. It's so great that we can't let anything stand in the way of it. We can't let the few be obstacles to the happiness of the many. So it's, it, it sacrifices those who would stand in the way of the realization of this utopian ideal. And that's always a problem with utopianism. It's a problem with religious utopianism, and it's a problem with secular utopianism, that it will sacrifice human beings for the sake of this ideal, and so on. So that's wherever there's a utopian vision, start worrying. You know, As one of the German poets said, well, if they begin by burning books, they'll end by burning people. Um, and this, I think, is an extremely important insight, actually, that you burn the books because you see the books as an obstacle to people's emancipation or freedom. When I, and the, the contemporary uh, equivalent of burning the books is cancel culture and all the rest of it, right? Um, uh, no platforming and this kind of thing, right? That's the, the, the contemporary equivalent or banning people from Twitter and all the rest of it and so on. That's, as it was, that, that's the logical counterpart of burning the books. Right. But once you burn the books further down the road, you'll be burning the people. Um, now, turning to a particular kind of utopianism, which is a scientific utopianism, which is what you've touched on now. The this isn't altogether new. Its earlier version was eugenics uh, in the earlier part of the 20th century. And it's an interesting you've mentioned Chester and I've mentioned Chester. And one of Chesterton's deepest commitments in the sphere of social thinking was his opposition to eugenics. Uh, eugenics in the early part of the 20th century, and this is before the rise of National Socialism, by the way, though National Socialism took it up and practiced it, um, eugenics took the form of, of just killing off the defective. And then, you know, selective breeding. So it was, you know, what you would do is you wanted, as it were, the the superior people to breed with one another and the inferior people to be eliminated. And remember, and notice it's again the utopian structure. For the sake of creating a perfect happiness, we eliminate the obstacles to that, imperfection, defect, and so on. Now, eugenics got a bad name because of it's the practice of it in Soviet Russia and in, in, in Nazi Germany and elsewhere. But in a way, we're seeing its reemergence. And I think just as toleration, the term toleration has been twisted and contorted, I think we're en route to seeing um, the, the restoration of the eugenic ideal. It it'll, won't be cast, it won't use that term. In fact, what people say is, oh, it's unhelpful to use the term eugenics. What we're talking about is improvement of the human species for the benefit of all. But really, the logic is that of eugenics. Now, the, the means to it um, is through genetic engineering. And really, there are two kind of genetic interventions. There are interventions that you might make in the lives of existing human beings, introducing um, genes into their bodies in an effort to try to address disease or illness or some impairment, whatever it may be. But there's the more fundamental kind of genetic intervention is uh, germline uh, intervention. This is where you get right into, not just as it were, into an individual, but you make a change that will then be inherited by successive generations. 
So you, you get right into, as it were, the blueprint of the human being. And in the last few years, in the last decade, a technique has been developed called CRISPR, which is a form of gene editing. Now, that's to say going in and cutting up the genes, taking bits out, introducing bit pieces in, and so on. So just think of it as literally that. It's, it's kind of like going into a text and removing some of the words or putting in other words and so on. Now, gene editing in and of itself may not be problematic. What's problematic is its application to trying to change the text of human nature as such, not just as it were to address this issue or that issue in a given individual, but as it were to transform human beings. Now, the utopians, the utopian eugenicists, which is what they are, are people who think what we can do now is we can actually change human nature by going right into the coding, the text, and change it in a way that means that every subsequent generation will inherit these changes, the effects of these changes, and so on. Now, I think there are several things to be said about this that are problematic. One is, of course, our unforeseen uh, side effects. Uh, so if we go back to, say, cloning Dolly the sheep, if you remember the, the sheep that was cloned oh, yes, yes. here in Scotland, about 50 miles from here, Dolly the sheep actually um, inherited from the genetic material certain mutations and so on that actually were, were life-threatening, ultimately. Uh, details of that don't matter, but it's just a, it's a, a question of unforeseen side effect, right? You start tinkering around with the text, you're not quite sure what's going to happen, right? Unforeseen effects and so on. So it's dangerous, that's one thing. Secondly, even where it isn't dangerous, it can lead to injustice, because what you do is you create, as it were, a superior category of human beings and a lower category. What you actually start to do is something that we don't currently really have, but breeds of human beings. See, if you take breed dogs, let's move to dogs, different kinds of breeds of dogs are not different species. There is only one species. These are breeds. These are bred to have certain characteristics. Now, that's effectively what would happen here, right? That, that you, you'd start to get certain breeds of human beings, the superior human beings, and then you get the inferior human beings. And what you'd start to get is a situation in which the superior may make use of the inferior for their own benefit and so on. That's the second concern. But the third, and I'd say in a way most fundamental concern, is that if you start to try to change what human beings are, what you're doing is denying what I'd call givenness. What I mean by that is this, not necessarily religious givenness, I just mean this, that the nature of the human condition Whatever we do is going to be that we come into a world that we didn't make under conditions over which we have only limited control and in circumstances that are unpredictable. And what's good about human beings, what's noble about human beings is living with givenness, understanding the givenness of the human condition. But it's not something that we can determine. It's something that we inherit or something that we find ourselves in the midst of, and finding value in the midst of givenness. Some of what's given is good, some of what's given is problematic, but finding a kind of way of living that's an ennobling conception of human beings living in conditions they did not themselves create. Whereas the whole utopian geneticist, uh, eugenicist, I'm sorry, uh, aspiration using the new genetic techniques 
in the service of transhumanism and so on, is denying the very idea of givenness. And in denying the very idea of givenness, it subverts, it undermines the possibility of human nobility. Because human nobility, the things that we admire most about morally profound and good people, is the fact that they understand that human happiness, human flourishing, human satisfaction, is to be found and developed in the midst of limitations, in the midst of difficulties, right? That it's, it's actually living in the face of challenges that produces nobility. If you remove the challenges, you don't make us more noble, you make us incapable of being noble. So these are three aspects of this that I think are deeply problematic. Can I ask you, is there a connection with um, the way in which technology generally is perhaps in danger of spinning out of control. I mean, technology at a basic level, outsourcing human strength to a forklift or human intelligence to a computer. But is our technology getting so advanced in areas like artificial intelligence that the distinction between the human being uh, and the technological is, is being blurred? Is there in fact a risk that we create such intelligent and powerful technologies that to build on that point you've just mm. made, uh, we deny not just our givenness, but even our autonomy. Well, that's a, that is a, an interesting point. Um, I don't myself fear artificial intelligence in the sense that, you know, we're going to have machines that take over the world or something of that sort, or, you know, AI robotics that somehow become, you know, these you know, aggressive, uh, uh, you know, like some science fiction film, in which they sort of, you know, they attack, they attack us. I'm not, I'm not concerned about that. I mean, design them properly and we won't have to worry about that. But I, but, but I take it that the broader concern is more that, as it were, it's sapping our sense of our responsibility for taking charge of things ourselves in a way that we kind of outsource what ought to be a matter for us to machines, as it were, that we, 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 and in the process of that, we lose our capacity. Let me just offer an analogy that might help in this respect. I said earlier on that I, uh, I spent five years studying art before I turned to the study of philosophy, or perhaps returned to the study of philosophy, because I'd had some experience of it at school and so on. But at any rate, I had five years of art, and subsequent to that, I taught uh, on a visiting basis in an architecture school. Now, one of the things that architectural training used to involve was the, um, the study of the changing effects of light during the day on the surface of buildings. So fenestration is the process of, of introducing windows into a facade, into a, a frontage. And the, deep, the depth of the recess of the windows and the molding that might surround the windows cast shadow in the course of the day. So in the training of an architect, one thing they had to be aware of is the same building at different latitudes across the surface of the earth will, will look different depending on how northerly you are, how southerly you are, the time of year, the time of day, and so on. And even in a given location, it will change during the course of the day because of the movement of the sun and so on and such like. So architectural students had as an exercise going out and drawing a building or a series of buildings at different times of the day to observe 
the changing effects of shadow and so on. And so that when they were then going to design a molding around a window frame, let's say, or a doorway or something of that sort, they'd be aware that the depth of the molding was going to interact with the shadow and, and create the shadow and one thing or another. Um, sorry, I should say create the shadow and such like. So that was a skill that was developed by actually looking and seeing, right? That you actually would get your pad, you'd go and look at a piece of molding around the doorway, you'd draw it at different times of day and you'd see the effect of it. And so you then think, well, I want this to be a deeper effect, so I'm gonna to have to make a deeper molding and so on and such like. Now, architectural drawing then was taken over by machines. So you can just program in, right? So you can just ask a machine, basically, if I have a two inch or whatever it is, you know, whatever many centimeters that is, depth on a molding, how would that look at noon in Reykjavik on December the 15th, right? And how would it look in Naples, uh, such and such, and so on and so on and so on, right? So you can just ask the computer and it will just produce an image, or indeed you can have an an animated image which will show the changing the course of the day for any, you know, the little clock just changing the day and such like the season, the day, and so on. So what, in the course of that, people have lost. They, in one sense, you might say the technology has facilitated things. It's increased our knowledge because you can now say at any time of day what this would look like and so on. But in another way, it's actually deprived us. We've outsourced our capacity to answer that question to a machine. And so an architect, if you say, how would that look? They can't just get a piece of paper and draw it for you. They'd have to say, oh, hang on a second, I'll show you on the computer, right? Now, that's just a small illustration in which what looks as if it's an enrichment of human cognitive capacities is, in fact, an impoverishment of human cognitive capacities. That the more that, as it were, we outsource our thinking to machines or our intellectual capacities through programs on, on computers, the less and less we have of them ourselves. And so we just know that. And, and you know, the, the capacity, for example, to repair motor cars, you know, motor cars are now made in such a way that the engines can't be opened up, right? That now, I mean, it, it's a great technological advance and so on, but if you want diagnostics on your car, if you want to know how your car's getting on, there's no point in having a look at the engine or trying to take it apart and such like. You just have to take it into a, into a place where they hook it up to a computer and it runs a diagnostic. But we can't repair our cars. We can't repair our televisions. Increasingly, people don't know how to repair a tap, right? Um, so we're actually disabling the, 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 um, the outsourcing, the development of technology and the outsourcing of our abilities, transferring them across the technology, means that we're increasingly becoming incapable of things. And that, of course, presents all sorts of dangers to people, you know, uh, just, uh, you know, if, if the electricity goes off, how are you going to manage? People don't don't have candles in their house. They wouldn't know, you know, how to light a candle in a, and put, position it in a way that would be safe or, you know, they wouldn't have a kerosene lamp or whatever else it may be, you know, that they've outsourced everything. And um, this is quite striking. I see it even in the generation of my own children that they, as you know, much as I love them, I wouldn't, couldn't rely on them to be able to do anything or many of the things that I could do because they don't know how to do them. How would they know how to do them? Because they've never had to do them. And the reason they haven't had to do them is because the technology is there. So there's a very serious problem, that what looks as if it's an enhancement is in fact an impoverishment. Well, in a world where change is the only certainty, 
perhaps followed uh, by the other near certainty, which is that it will be increasingly rapid and leave us breathless yes. in its wake. It strikes me that there's one interesting area in the great moral canvas of issues that we, uh, cons we've considered as, as human beings over recent decades, where there's a, something of a rethink going on, and it's on the vexed issue of abortion in America. Uh, and I'm just interested in your views. You're now seeing um, some quite remarkable events. Uh, the pro-life movement in America seems to be greatly reinvigorated. Uh, you've got many states starting to change the law to make abortions um, illegal once a heartbeat can be detected, whereas in Australia uh, and indeed in New York not so long ago, you've had great celebrations of the idea that a baby can be aborted right up until the time that it can be born. Uh, yeah. Um, what is it about America? Because it's not happening in our culture. I don't think it's happening in Britain. I'm not sure about Europe. Mm -hmm. But in America, it seems as though it's one social indicator where there's something of a rethink and a retake going on more than um, might be expected. And of course, it will be very, very divisive as an issue. We don't know what the American Supreme Court will decide uh, in relation to some of the issues that are before it uh, uh, and, uh, and, and so forth. But I'd just be interested in your perspectives. Occasionally, we do a rethink I mean, for many years, slavery was thought of as part of the natural order of things, including by all of the early major Enlightenment figures. Uh, that's often forgotten. Uh, we would now say, no, we were completely wrong there and we reversed tack. Uh, what's happening, in your view, in America that is leading to this rethink? And I don't think that's too strong a word on the part of yeah. a lot of Americans. Well, I think there's, there's two things that are going on. And then there's this further question, why are they going on there and not elsewhere? Um, so, you, you know, you, it's a very good question, but it, 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 you know, it, it's going to take me a couple of minutes to try and separate out the factors and so on. Let me just say something about America generally, and, and then I'll come to the particularities of the abortion issue. America is a very idealistic society. It's a very young society, uh, relatively speaking, and it's founded not exactly uniquely, but, but very on something very rare, which are philosophical principles. The American Constitution is a work of political philosophy, or political legal philosophy, you might say, and it's very idealistic. So it, people sat down and they asked themselves a question, a question that Plato asked himself in the Republic two and a half thousand years ago, and he wrote that, and uh, when he wrote the laws, and then Aristotle takes that on in his politics and so on, and Cicero in the Roman world and so on and such like, but here's, I mean, the question is, what is justice? What are the basic principles of justice? How ought a society be constituted? What's the relationship between the individual and the state and so on? These ethical political questions, in the case of the United States, were not only asked, but having been asked, they were answered and a constitution was devised and a society was established. So the United States of America is in its way the most philosophical constitution that we have. It's one that's been deliberated, thought through, and so on. And this is an aspect of American consciousness, which is a kind of idealism. Americans really believe that things can be done well and should be done well, that they don't, as it were, just settle with what there is. They, 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 they want to try to make sure that it's good. And among the things that American value, Americans value are things like family. It's part of the American ideal family. So the having of children 
the forming of families and so on is very much part of the American conception of the good life. So Americans are just in general, notwithstanding the changes radicals are trying to introduce and so on, but Americans are just much more attached to family life uh, than, uh, say, our Europeans, for example, or indeed, I think, Australians. I mean, it's an irony because we think of Europeans, particularly, say, of the Mediterranean or Southern Europe and so on, as you know, these large families and so on. But as you probably know, countries like Spain and Portugal and Italy and such like Greece are below replacement level. Uh, I mean, it takes 2.1 births, live births, to, to maintain a population. Some of these countries are you know, dropping towards one, and if not, then going to move below that. So they are um, the, the, the places that were once celebratory of family, you might say we very much associated them with family, are ceasing to have children. I think this statistic, I don't think it's exactly right the year that I'm going to get it, but I think by 2050, or it might be 2060, I, can't, I think it's 2050, I think that something like 60% of Italians will have no brother, sister, first cousin, aunt or uncle. Uh, two generations of single children. Now, Americans, on the other hand, um, have embraced, and, and, and mainly, certainly in when you get away from metropolitan coastal America, still very attached to the idea of family life. So that's a factor in this. But I think I would mention a couple of other factors. One is, it goes back to... Um, something that sort of developed as a bit of technology, and that was just screening in early pregnancy. So they, with ultrasound, the ability to show a baby in the womb has, I think, contributed to the realization that you're dealing with a human being in there. It's not just a blob of cells or a lump of stuff and so on, that you're seeing a human being in its various stages of development. And so, you know, when mothers or other members of the family, you can see this, there's the sense of a living human being growing there. And so that and a recognition, or you might say a visual recognition of the fact that to have an abortion is to destroy a human life, that it's not something that's out of sight, it's now become visible. And along with that, another aspect of technology is the capacity um, uh, to um, do caesarean sections at early stages um, and remove a, a baby who otherwise would be threatened. So premature births, whether uh, through well, the natural vaginal passageway or through a caesarean, um, the fact is that there are uh, babies in intensive care units, uh, premature babies, who are being kept alive in the same hospitals that are killing babies that are older than them. So that's another aspect of this and so on. But then the third thing I would say is a political development in the United States, which is the idea that federal government is, which is part of the old constitution. The constitutional idea, by the way, in the United States is that federal government, and this is relevant to how you think of things in Australia, federal government is a secondary legislative level. Funnily enough, you do, it isn't the, the, the primary one are individual states. Um, so federal government came into existence and federal legislation was meant to address matters that um, couldn't be resolved with individual states, such as sort of interstate trade and things of that sort. But what's ha what happened in the course of the 20th century, largely because of the Second World War, was the growth of federal government. Yes. And so people started to see federal government as the government 
and then state government as something secondary, which was a reversal of the constitutional uh, uh, settlement that had been introduced in the 18th century. But there has been a rediscovery in recent times or a, a, a revival of the, the idea that the primary legislative body should be the individual state, not the federal government. The federal government is a secondary residual source of legislation. Now, once you have that idea, what you're going to then think is that issues like abortion, but not only abortion, many other issues, should be matters for individual states to decide, not matters for federal government to resolve. And Roe versus Wade, which is the relevant bit of legislation at uh, the federal, uh, uh, or sorry, sorry the, the, the relevant bit of judicial decision judicial by the decision Supreme Court, um, decided that um, the, a woman's there was a woman a right of a woman to have an abortion on grounds of a constitutional provision, something in the constitution, and that was the right to privacy. Now, I, I was going to say most legal scholars in this division on this, but let's just say there's a there's a very significant legal opinion even among people who are advocates of abortion, that Roe versus Wade was a bad piece of judicial decision, that it's not plausible, just as a piece of jurisprudence of legal reasoning, to think that there can be a right to abortion on the basis of a right to privacy. So what I think is happening is this, is that people are re-questioning Roe versus Wade at a time when there's been a revival of the idea that it's for states to legislate on fundamental questions concerning um, uh, people's lives. And that is an application of a principle. I mean, I don't mean that people intend it as such, but it's connected with the principle in Catholic social teaching of subsidiarity, that the idea that government should be as close to the people that it governs as possible. And so these sort of matters should be decided as close to the people that they affect. And the closest form of government that could decide this matter are individual states. So I think what, what might happen, I mean, I don't know what the outcome of this might be when the Supreme Court decides the matter, but the removal of Roe versus Wade, the, per the point of that would not be to uh, legitimize anti-abortion legislation. It would be to say that it's up to individual states how they legislate on the question of abortion. So it's not, as it were, it's, not, it's neither meant to be liberal nor restrictive. It would be for individual states, just to say that it's for states to decide what abortion laws they should have. And it's for their electorate to play their role in supporting or not supporting more or less um, restrictive legislation. So I think several things are coming together. Technology, uh, showing people babies living and growing within the womb, um, uh, the ability to preserve the lives of premature uh, babies, I think it's the American idealization of things like family life and so on. And then it's this recovery of the idea that the primary legislative body should be the individual state rather than the federal government and so on. So rather, as we began our conversation, it's a convergence of independent factors that have produced a kind of growing consciousness that has settled on this issue, as it happens, of abortion. Now, how that will be resolved you know, who knows, it remains to be seen. But I do think it's very significant that this has all come to the fore now, because I think it's a set of considerations or forces that have been convergent on this. And the effect of where, whatever way this goes is going to be impactful, not just in the United States, but I think more broadly 
Uh, and so I think we are in a very interesting period in which, on the one hand, going back to the earliest part of our conversation, there's an effort to recover genuine liberalism, genuine freedom. And there's also a, an effort to recover a sense of politics that removes, that, that, that relocates politics at the more local level, rather than having it at the level of the, the overarching and all-powerful state. Well, John, you've really... Uh thrown a lot of light on some really interesting <laughs> contemporary issues tonight and you've been very generous with your time. Uh, can I thank you uh, and in so doing perhaps just ask you to comment on one last thing. I know you're involved in academia, you speak at a lot of universities, you have a lot of involvement with them. They're under fire these days on a whole number of fronts. Um, are universities in your view still uh, contributing as much as they might? Are they teaching us to think? Or are they encouraging us to groupthink? Well, I mean, I think, that, look, first of all, universities are not exempt from the general cultural and social trends. And uh, indeed, to some extent, they, they become sort of echo chambers for some of those. Uh, and obviously, academics enjoy opportunities to present their views, you know, to a captive audience, you might say. Um, uh, and so that puts them in a particular position. But nonetheless, I think that they're what's going on in universities is symptomatic of something that's going on, has been going on in society more broadly. Look, what I would say is this, that, you know, a college or university education is a very special opportunity for human beings to develop their minds and so on, for young people to develop their minds, to learn about ideas from the past and such like. And, you know, it's fine to have a variety of views represented and so on. But it's important in, in the course of that, that we bear in mind the idea that universities really exist to empower people, to enable people, to train people to think. They're not places of indoctrination of any kind or shouldn't be, I would say. And so the danger is that, that you know, it's the, the treason of the Clarks, as it were, that, that where we have to avoid the situation in which the very people, namely college and university lecturers, whom society has entrusted with the task of training the rising generation to think and to understand how others have thought in the past. We have to be careful that, that they don't betray their vocation uh, by becoming propagandists. Now, there's a little bit of a danger of that, but I'm an optimist. I think that, you know, I think there's also evidence of people drawing back from that and being concerned about that and trying to recover the, the, the older idea. We talked about recovery earlier on. So I think it's been a rough time. I think it began, you know, in the 60s. It didn't begin yesterday. Uh, it's coming to a sort of, perhaps it's past the point of crisis. I'm not quite sure. But I think in 10 years' time, things are going to look uh, better. Um, so from that point of view, I'm optimistic. But it has to be said that it has been and continues to be, for many people, a difficult time. And universities aren't always ironically, uh, the best places in which to explore and discuss ideas. But as I say, I'm an optimist. Well, on that note, uh, and thanking you again for the enormous contribution you make to the global debate around some of the great contemporary issues confronting us, thank you, and uh, I appreciate very much that you've been generous with your time. Well, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure and I've enjoyed it, so thank you also. You've been listening to John Anderson Direct. For more information, visit johnanderson.net.au.